Civil Sentinel Podcast. The Civil Sentinel Podcast is brought to you by Zavala1836.com. That's Z-A-V-A-L-A-1836.com. If you like all things tactical apparel and stickers, head on over, check it out. The Sports Podcast. Good evening. Good evening, fellas. Broadcasting live from the Civil Sentinel Bunker. You wish you had a bunker. I wish I had a bunker. You were right. So do I. I don't have a bunker, but I now am the proud owner of a Viper 14. Gen 4 Photonis. PS14. It's 3 plus. Nice. Gen 4. Whatever whatever they want to call it. Pretty slick, man. Yeah. One of my one of the C5 and I's buddies ordered a like an Omni 7 PVS 14 with really good specs. And he, he messaged me and was like, or he messaged us and was like, hey, I just bought this. And he was like, Tito, if you want it. I'll sell it to you, either that or I'm just going to keep it as a spare. And I was like, no, nah, I'll buy that. <laughs> so I'm stoked. It's a uh, it's Gen Three Green Foss. Um, so yeah, yeah. I think it's surplus Omni Tube, right? Yeah, I think it's Omni Seven or uh, Seven. Yeah, or eight. like can't that. go wrong with a Seven or Eight. He said that the 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 FOM and the spec sheet and everything's uh, was really solid on it. So I'm stoked. I got my Cry Nightcap and. All the mounting hardware sitting here on my desk. Nice, nice. Just bought a $60 bump helmet. Took all the hardware out and Loctited it and put it all back in. Nice. What helmet did you get? Uh, It's like a Lugu. <laughs> Chinese as you can get. Yeah, what the Chinese <laughs> fuck? <laughs> by the way, we are joined by C5 tonight. Ethan's back. This is, this is take two that we, we recorded Hello, once before, and uh, there was some mishap downloading the recording. It downloaded just C5s, and it deleted Tito and Maya's recording. So we are, we're on take two right now. We're going to recap what we tried to do last time. Yeah. Yeah, I think the NSA agent is not on this call this time, so we're, we should be fine. It's a little late for him. Yeah. It's it's 1040 over there, East Coast time, so. <laughs> your your yeah, superiors there, yeah. found out that you were toxic with us, and... Uh, Hacked oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, got a couple of different uh, payloads via the Discord voice services. Those bastards in Virginia. They're actually technically in Maryland, but yeah. Oh, is that where like the CIA is? Is Maryland? Well, CIA is in Langley, but NSA headquarters is in uh, Fort Meade outside of Baltimore. Ah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, you got NSA sites in Georgia, Augusta, Georgia, and Fort Gordon, and then you've got Denver, and then you've got Texas near, uh, I believe it's San Antonio, and then you've got Hawaii. Yeah, I know in San Antonio, it's uh, attached to Lackland Air Force Base. Isn't there like yeah, a big right. NSA I, facility out in like Utah that does all the like fucking internet data that's collection? That's server farm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, uh, that's the metadata collection center. It's like 5 million square feet of servers that record everything. What if I told you guys that there's a entity that images the entire internet i would believe it believe it yeah well i can't say who but just know that it's out there <laughs> it's definitely not the united states government it's actually not to my, to oh. my surprise wow probably the israeli wait just real quick is is craig our our, our bot recorder yeah okay I, I thought craig was real no <laughs> <laughs> he thought craig uh. was real oh shit <laughs> So That's we funny. I forget who else 
Go go ahead. We record this podcast on Discord, and and uh, there's a, a bot called Craig, and you invite it into the server, and it records everything and spits out the audio for download when we're done. That's Very cool. Craig well, thank you, Craig. Thank you for your service, Craig. He's just eavesdropping on us. Are you are you gonna? He's gonna he's gonna offset all this data to ChatGPT after this. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, Craig GPT. Craig GPT. <laughs> well, gentlemen, shall we? Uh, what's the topic for tonight? going to dive I know back what the into, topic is. Uh, I'm just putting in a question. <laughs> yeah. The reason I asked you on, uh, Ethan, is we wanted to get into uh, ComSec. You've got a little bit of ComSec experience under your belt, uh, being that you are an active duty Marine. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, what your MOS is and what you know and what your experience is? Yeah. So um, just real quick, kind of sticking to the topic of ComSec and signals intelligence and electronic warfare. Um, my background is a, I'm a 1702 cyber warfare officer. Um, been, been doing this for about five years now. Uh, went to the schoolhouse in Fort Gordon, Georgia, uh, and then pretty much went off to Okinawa for about three years out in Okinawa did lots of kind of on network defense. So as a cyber warfare officer, my job was definitely focused more on the digital network size. So think windows domain environment. Um, your Linux machines, all of your networking gear in terms of Cisco routing or routers, switches, servers, what have you. And then I had a little bit of experience um, doing some off-network stuff, i.e. Uh, electronic warfare, electronic attack, electronic support, as well as sort of assisting um, signals intelligence and EW forces um, from my one of my adjacent units. I uh, did a lot of work alongside reconnaissance uh, as well as special operations types uh, of forces um, and really just got, got after digital networked or digital networks on top of digital and analog radio on top of small UAS, i.e. group one. And if you don't know what groups are for UAS, definitely Google it. There's five groups, group one through five, all based upon weight of said UAS. UAS is also unmanned aerial system, if people didn't know that. But um, usually you see acronyms like UXS, which the X just means it's agnostic. X could be a G, could be an S, could be an A, just standing for aerial, subsurface, submersible, or even ground. So, uh, but yeah, otherwise, you have spent three years in uh, Japan. Uh, now I'm back here in the US and Florida doing some schoolhouse stuff. So now I've just been kind of yanked back into the schoolhouse. Um, where we, I work at a cryptologic site, uh, with NSA contractors doing anything from EW to cryptologic training to signals intelligence as well as cyber warfare. So kind of see the whole umbrella of training on the DOD side for all services, including the space force and coast guard. So it's pretty exciting kind of what's in the future, what's coming, um, and kind of what our best and brightest as far as enlisted service members go, um, kind of get trained to. So. The standards are also ever increasing, um, and I guess we're here to kind of talk to some standards for us civilians, us dirty civilians. Um, but yeah, that's my back. It's awesome. It's a lot of really good uh, information there, as far as um, you know, knowledge and in, in uh, higher levels of uh, you know 
digital surveillance and electronic surveillance and and even signal intelligence stuff. Yeah, and it's actually really interesting. On, on the tail end of my time in Japan, I've spent about probably six months really getting spun up on a lot of the space-based capabilities. And unfortunately, I can't really scratch that surface very deep here. But um, it does really open your eyes in terms of what you see in movies, um, what you may see in the schoolhouse, and then boom, you hit space-based. And it's like, just speaking to money, um, a lot more money goes into space-based uh, you know, RF geolocation, SIGINT collection, as well as even kinetic, like space kinetic warfare. I mean, we're talking ball bearings being shot from satellites at other satellites, like to be very generic about things, but that's pretty wild. That is pretty wild. Yeah. They took the Red Rider BB gun and put it in space. <laughs> <laughs> Except now that BB's doing like 87 kilometers an hour. <laughs> yeah. Or oh, wait, kilometers a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah. That's wild. 87 kilometers an hour is not very fast, but per yeah. second, it's pretty fucking fast. So yeah, Star Wars got that wrong. They were all about lasers. I'm like, but what about BBs? You can't even see BBs in space. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, another thing I want to touch on later in this podcast is really just from, from my point of view within the DoD, uh, this isn't to kind of like uproot or bring awareness to sensitive tactics, techniques, procedures, or TTPs, as we all kind of uh, warmingly know. But at the same time, I do want to bring light to at least kind of the bureaucracy behind like at least a nation state's level of SIGINT, because I think that's a huge, huge consideration that's often overlooked when we start talking analog versus digital land mobile radio that's available to us civilians. And we tend to get in this kind of rut of like signals, intelligence and EW attack vectors and why analog is more prone than digital to many threats um, as well as digital's metadata and blah, 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 blah. All the kind of recent drama that we've seen on social media about such things. Um, but what really needs to be understood is the attack vectors for civilians are still very different than attack vectors or considerations for us military folks just because you're not always going to be considering dealing with a nation state's EW or signal intelligence threats especially domestically and this isn't to kind of stir the pot of conspiracy about US nation state assets being used domestically inside the continental US but at the same time you should at least boil it down to what's my largest kind of um, potential adversary. Like what's the, what's the most likely potential adversary and that's not necessarily the US government and government forces but your neighbor, right? Your neighbor that may or have differing interests may have, you know, may simply want your land or your watering source or whatever the resource or supply or whatever it is you're fighting for or fighting over um, or trying to maintain control of. So obviously adversaries are different. Uh, we're not talking about people in the middle of Afghanistan or Iraq here. And we're not talking about necessarily Chinese troops on U.S. soil, which we can still talk about that as a consideration, but I think big picture here is uh, what does Johnny down the street have as a potential capability against me and my community? So yeah, no, I totally agree with that. A lot of people, I think, get caught up thinking that you know they're going to be like fighting the the U.S. military or or some other you know high level nation state where, uh, as you said, that's proud that's that's most likely not going to be the case. At, whereas your your actual threats to your electronic systems and everything is going to be much more local or, or regional, whether, like you said, it's Johnny down the road or even uh, local gangs, cartels, depending on where you're at. I was pretty surprised to learn uh, recently that that some of the like cartel activity, even the stuff happening like domestically within the U.S. has fairly high level signal intelligence and like electronic warfare capabilities, everything from 
drone guns being able to, you know, basically like a directional antenna that fires a burst at a drone to either make that drone land or, or return back to where uh, the pilot is. Um, that kind of stuff. It was very interesting to figure that out recently. Oh, yeah. So that's a good uh, some of opportunity it. to uh, kind of lead in with this little uh, summary that I wrote here. And I, I sent you all some notes. Uh, I know you looked over them. We'll kind of touch and go on this and, and not follow the outline like we normally do. Basically, no, we like have this. to follow this one. Uh, an, an adversary, <laughs> if they were able to detect and observe your communication, uh, would consider any, any information exchanged as intelligence if they were to capture it. They attempt to intercept your RF communications in order to gain a force multiplying edge against you. Um, and kind of what that looks like is if you're doing something, if you're active, if you're operational, if you're planning, if you're coordinating logistics, uh, if an if an adversary were able to eavesdrop on any of your communications and kind of figure out your logistics, then they could plan an ambush. They could uh, figure out your weakness. Uh, they could figure out uh, what your structure is. Um, any any information gained is going to be something that can be used against you. So the objective there is for an adversary is to intercept enemy communications uh, for the sake of gaining intelligence. Once intelligence is gained, you can either A, use that intelligence against them, use, against your adversary, or you can B, target the source of that uh, information and uh, locate it and strike it, uh, take it out. Eliminate it. And that's kind of, uh, from a, from a concept perspective, you know, the, the principle is always assume somebody's listening. When we do that, the reason we do that is because anybody who's listening could be gathering information and using it against you is basically the, the summary there. And, uh, that, that kind of lays the premise for breaking down some ComSec things like uh, measures to uh, secure your communications uh, from eavesdropping adversaries. Um, so if someone is listening, listening, let's talk about how do they listen? What tools are they using to listen? Um, that sort of thing. Uh, what kind of information are they gathering and how are they doing it? Because uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer if you know how somebody's doing something and you know what they're looking for, then that gives you enough of an edge to counter, you know, to, to take security measures um, and that sort of thing. From the civilian standpoint, that's where stuff like emissions control comes in and we'll definitely break that down. But what do you guys think? Well, I think first and foremost, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say maybe, okay, well, I started talking, so I'm taking it. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Take it away, Caleb. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, we've been meaning to uh, do a little bit better about this, especially with a lot of these acronyms and, and like uh, nomenclature with the communication stuff. Just in case anyone hasn't heard it before, ComSec is communications uh, security. And I was just going to read a quick paragraph out of the USMC Radio Operators Handbook. This is uh, MCRP 3-40.3 Bravo. Um, the goal of ComSec is to protect friendly communications from enemy exploitation while ensuring unimpeded use of the electromagnetic spectrum. The organization must be able to employ communications equipment effectively in the face of enemy efforts. So that's that's a huge role of, of communication security. And I'll let uh, Ethan take it from here. Yeah, so we'll break it down, right? I mean, I'm not going to jump to the end, but you, talk, you, you picked that apart just now. Protecting friendly communications from enemy exploitation 
where the enemy is applying effort, i.e. resources, manpower, talent, what have you, time um, towards your communications. And then you're also wanting to not shoot yourself in the foot here, but still maintain um, clean communications that doesn't, you know, burden your own operations. But uh, just to kind of dial it back, how would an enemy go about exploiting my friendly communications? Well, we're talking about uh, listening devices, right? We're talking about what's what's on the receiving end, RX, TX, RX being receiving, TX being transmitting. Um, but as far as listening goes, right, it's free, doesn't require a license. You don't need to be a ham radio operator to receive. Um, so what can you as a kind of someone getting into the world of SIGIN and EW start out with? Um, well, to break it down, you pretty much have software-defined radios, um, something like an RTL SDR dongle. Uh, pretty common, rather cheap. They're under 50 bucks, or at least south of that. Um, as you can scale that all the way up to something more advanced in the hundreds of dollars. That does a little bit more, maybe a little bit wider band. Um, an RTL SDR will get you from megahertz, correct me if I'm wrong here, 10 megahertz to like lower L band. And, um, but it's pretty much covering your lower VHF, upper VHF, your UHF range, all the way up through your L band range. Um, L band being kind of in that, uh, area of 1500 plus megahertz all the way up through 1800 megahertz, which you do see some drone activity in that, in that band. Uh, and then also I would say more commonly, you have a simple radio. Simply having a Baofeng UV5R, uh, that's dual band, i.e. you can scan through VHF and uh, UHF bands. Um, that itself is a, is a listening device, and you can simply use that to scan for analog activity. Is it great at scanning? I would say no, uh, compared to a programmable SDR or a purpose-built scanner, um, such as those that provided by the, the vendor named Uniden. That's U-N-I-D-E-N. They're one of the, I'd say, the market leaders in building uh, portable scanners, uh, both for public safety, EMS, police, um, as well as just kind of the hobbyists that like to listen in on radio chatter, be it from police and whatnot. And those union scanners can get pretty advanced. We're talking, like I said, hundreds of dollars here, even thousands for mobile applications um, to get into particular digital protocols, trunking, um, trunking, um, what do you call it? I guess trunked networks, if you want to call it that for now. Um, so you can definitely go from what I would say the baseline is just simple analog listening on a Baofeng uh, to some more advanced things that you can definitely get after, I would say, more cheaply with a RTL SDR dongle and some open source software. I would say that's definitely the place to start if you're trying to get after a lot of capability for the same amount of money as a Baofeng UV5R. Um, and listening is, is really worth its weight in gold when it comes to um, simply just being able to hop on the net, uh, not even make a peep and be hidden, and simply just put your ear out there to the, you know, the electromagnetic spectrum, which we would probably, I guess from here on out, call the EMS. So that's the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, within the EMS, you do have the RF spectrum, which is what you know radios are on. So... I'm not going to go into the whole gamut of EMS, but that's where you also have like uh, the visible spectrum, uh, the infrared spectrum, microwaves, all those other things that kind of fall on that. But we're talking specifically the RF spectrum here. Um, but I would say if you definitely are curious about listening and making a tactical use out of it, uh, an RTL-SDR dongle is by far the best bang for your buck.
yeah, and with that, I, I'll open up the yeah, I'll open up the discussion from there. I was just gonna say, I pulled it up real quick because I haven't uh, bought one in a while, but I went to the RTL SDR blog. Uh, I suggest if you're going to buy one of these, go to the actual blog and follow the link from their website to a source uh, to their store or a source to buy them. They do sell them on Amazon directly now. Uh, I don't think that used to be the case. There's a lot of fakes on Amazon, but it looks like uh, I went to RTLSDR.com to the blog and I pulled it up. $31.95 for the new V3 uh, black uh, RTLSDR. Um, they tune from 500 kilohertz up to 1.7 gigahertz, and they have upped the instantaneous bandwidth to 3.2 megahertz. That's up from 2.4. Um, 2.4, it still says, is the stable, but you can max it out at 3.2. And HF reception below 24 megahertz is done in direct sampling mode, which reduces performance, but it, was, it will still receive all the way to 500 kilohertz. Very nice. The mouth and as someone who has a couple of these, uh, yeah, that was a mouthful. I was just reading it straight off the, the website there. But um, uh, as someone who has a couple of these, they are awesome tools. I love my RTL SDRs. Let's talk about, okay, so an, what what exactly is an SDR? It's a software-defined radio, and you can use turn your computer into a scanner. I'll reiterate. Uh, so an SDR essentially is a, uh, is a tool, an electronic device. It's a listening device. You plug into your computer and you're turning your computer into an RF scanner, scanning radio frequencies. Uh, so you're able to audibly hear anything that's going on in the radio spectrum on your computer. And for that matter, you can it gives you a visualization of it, too. You get a little waterfall. And uh, so when we talk about the bandwidth, the 3 megahertz bandwidth there, uh, you're not just listening to one frequency. You're listening to everything. Or you're getting a you're listening to one frequency, but you're getting a visual of everything going on uh, 1.5 megahertz to either side of that frequency. Um, so it, it's a yeah, powerful exactly. tool. You can you can scan through and you can see the traffic and then you can zero in on the traffic. Uh, it's much better than setting... You basically just look for... I was going to say, you just look for like... Uh, you look for spikes on the spectrum and uh, you'll see like the little like jagged line of the spectrum and, and what would be like the noise floor, which is where there's like no signals. You'll then look for spikes and then the waterfall... Uh, transfers that data down below into basically like a like a scrolling uh, I don't know how to exactly like put that into words but it's basically a scrolling waterfall that then you can see the where the traffic happens because it will it's almost like a uh, what's the word like uh, one of those a Richter scale kind of like one of those like for yeah. for earthquakes but or the uh, it's kind of like that for the electromagnetic spectrum and it's a seismograph a seismograph yeah, seismograph. That's the yeah. Richter scale is how we measure earthquakes. You guys got so many earthquake, earthquakes in Florida. Yeah, we Act- do. Artificial. <laughs> there's a, yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. You can you can call it that. There's actually a cough, fault cough, line. Turkey, Syria, too, cough, cough. <laughs> there's actually a fault line not that far from uh, where I live. Surprisingly, I was just kidding, but I didn't I didn't know that was a thing. Is there really earthquakes in Florida? Uh, very rare, but yeah. Interesting. Oh. Anyway, yeah, it kind of is to the, crazy, yo. To the SDR discussion, <laughs> the seismograph. So, like, if, if you're 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 going to be able to detect and visually see any kind of uh, RF signal going on, as long as you're within that uh, range of seeing it. And there's some SDR softwares out there that uh, um, they can look at more than three megahertz of the band. Um, there's RTL power out there. You can scan the whole band if you wanted to, uh, but you're going to get way too much data to, to digest at one time. Yeah. I've been messing with that a little bit recently and it's, uh, it's a lot. 
there's also a scanning plugin for SDR Sharp that I've played around with a little bit, and it almost plays nicely with DSD Plus at the same time, but like not quite. Just not quite there. It's not quite there, but you could still like you could run them independently um, of each other. You could run uh, the SDR Sharp with the scanning plugin. I forget the name of the plugin right now. Uh, you could find it if you Google it. Um, but uh, you can run that scan. It'll show you areas of interest. Uh, it'll basically map out this the allotted spectrum that you you know decided to scan for however long, and then it will uh, it will show you spikes on that uh, on that spectrum, and then you could then uh, go and just tune SDR Sharp to those spikes. And if you're getting digital noise uh, through the noise that you're receiving using uh, just analog decoding, you can you can decipher whether that's a P25 or a or a DMR being the most common, and then you could fire up DSD Plus and uh, and try to decode it from there. Yeah, that's one of the coolest things about SDR softwares out there is you can really capture quite a lot. Uh, you can you can decipher a lot of information. You know, not just hearing analog voice, but you detect a digital signal, plug it in there, and it'll tell you what digital signal it is. And then once you figure out what digital signal it is, then you can demodulate it back to voice. Or you can use the DSD Plus tool and, and turn it into the text data that's being sent, uh, if it's TMS or something like that. And there are some limitations there, but that's basically the gist of it. And, you know, something to consider here is yeah. if that is that this is an open source tool that's available in the civilian market. Oh, just think about it like this. If, if if that's an open source tool that's available to us, what do nation states have? Yeah, C5. What do they have? Uh, well, <laughs> they've got DSD plus and then some. So I can't <laughs> go too deep onto they got, it. They got DSD plus plus. If we're talking DMR tier one, tier two, tier three, P25 phase one phase two tetra tetra if you guys know what tetra is think of it as the european slash asian equivalent of dmr um so pretty common over in asian countries china the koreas i'm pretty positive throughout like vietnam and cambodia and thailand uh, just the same digital kind of protocol as dmr just adopted by our other hemisphere partners so fellow human beings so yeah with that being said everything's i'll just say this everything's being exploited um unless you're talking about state-of-the-art frequency hopping spread spectrum waveforms that are only really being used by the top three or four nation states in the world um which i guess that could expand to many more countries within nato but pretty much any large defense budget nation, nation state is going to have capability to exploit uh, whatever is commercially available. Um, how deeply can they exploit that? How easily can they exploit that? Well, it depends. Um, for example, in the U.S., I would say everything down to a battalion level signals intelligence um, formation is going to be able to exploit your digital comms as well as your analog comms. If we're talking kind of terrestrial radio, Line of sight, VHF, UHF, um, handsets, mobile radio, whatnot. And then as you get into, I guess, even more advanced stuff, not really within the realm of acquiring as a civilian, but um, if we're talking like, I guess, uh, helicopter stuff, aircraft, submarines, ships uh, that aren't, you know, aren't touching necessarily commercial VHF, but are more rather using special SATCOM um, capabilities. And technologies, as well as even 
sort of your pretty niche HF and even like LF and, and uh, super, 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 super short. I guess I can't call it shortwave. I keep being confused because shortwave, yes, is HF, but at the same time, um, long wave. We're talking meters and even kilometers long wavelengths. So pretty much every nation state out there that would ever, you know, that has differing interests with the U.S. is going to have capability to exploit your P25, your DMR. Uh, as well, definitely and most of, definitely your analog, um, but we definitely will have to talk to ways of mitigating said threats, um, both from a TTP standpoint or a velocity of use. Uh, that's a shout out to nothing fancy right there, uh, as well as sort of layering your MCON and your ComSec uh, via encryption, uh, as well as like I said, TTPs. I think kind of if we're going to climb the the ladder here. I think the next question that can be asked is what can be learned from signals intelligence? What can be learned from uh, sitting and spending time on an SDR and gathering signals? There's a more than just you can listen in, capture that voice data. So a few of those things that we can learn is, first of all, you know, hey, what frequency is this uh, signal coming in on? And that's going to tell you what band is in use. And then the, I think the next thing that you're going to immediately learn is, is this uh, a simplex frequency or is this a duplex frequency? Uh, and if it's duplex, then there's a repeater in use or something similar to it. That That's the infrastructure that they're using. And then, you know, you can quickly tell what mode. Are they in analog mode? Are they in digital mode? If they're in digital mode, what digital mode are they using? We've already mentioned P25, DMR, NXDN, stuff like that. Uh, okay, if they're in digital mode, are they using encryption or are they not using encryption? And even if they are using encryption, you know, you can intercept stuff like, if you have the right tools for this, you can inter- intercept stuff like their talk group that they're putting out there, their target radio destination, if you will. Uh, you can also intercept their radio ID. And what you can learn about talk groups and radio IDs is you can start to uh, web weave uh, taking notes and develop a picture of how big their infrastructure is. You know, how many talk groups are there? How many radio IDs are there? Is there one radio ID that everybody's communicating with? And if so, that's probably a command unit or some unit that's, um, you know, calling the shots. And therefore, that's a high value target. That's something that you're going to want to hone in on and yeah. pay attention to and, and figure out the location of and see where I'm going with this. There's, there's, there's a lot of little observations that you can make just from intercepting signal. It'll tell you a lot of about where the signal's coming from and and what they're doing uh, beyond just listening in the, on the conversation. Yeah, it'll also give you an idea for the or an idea for the uh, like the level. You know, I guess the uh, the level of infra- like you said, kind of the level of infrastructure. Are they using digital radios? What protocol are they using? Are they using encryption? Uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, even from a civilian side with a RTL SDR, like you know, one or two of them, and just some open source software like. SDR sharp or something similar, um, uh, you could gather that information that you were saying uh, fairly quickly. Once you find the traffic, I can within a minute tell you, okay, well, it's either analog or it's not. That's going to be like step one. Step two is like, okay, well, it's not analog. Um, How can I, uh, how can I start decoding it? You know, well, first off it's going to be, well, DSD plus has the auto decoding. It takes like an extra second to catch the traffic when you have that feature turned on, in my experience. But um, just uh, through hearing the, like I, I said a little bit ago, just through hearing the traffic with SDR Sharp set to just demodulate analog like FM, 
you can get an idea for what uh, digital protocol is being used, whether it's DMR, which which people sound like say sounds like a helicopter or something. It's like a er, 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 like it makes bursting sounds almost or machine gun fire. People say machine gun, whereas a P25 sounds like a blender with your silverware drawer inside of it. <laughs> I guess is what P25 sounds like. So from there, you can very quickly identify the digital standard that's being used. You could set up DSD plus and run that. And then you could start capturing, like you said, talk group information, uh, radio IDs, uh, encryption algorithm being used. Uh, you can even uh, capture the key ID for the encryption. And the key ID is not the key to the encryption. It's just uh, the assigned number to that key the radio is using. So it's the CKR number in this case for like P25 radios. If you keyload them, your keys have to have CKR numbers. And that's the number that that's basically being captured, which is just, you know, from my code plug, it's just one through whatever, however many keys I have. But yeah, like you said, from there, uh, you very quickly gather that amount of information. And then you can even use a program like like uh, Xbox was Xbox like Game Studio or like an OBS studio, like some kind of a uh, screen capping software. And you could just record everything that's happening on SDR Sharp and the DSD Plus window. And you don't even have to really sit there. You could just set it to record for however long you want. And then you can come back and just check that catalog and view the, the corresponding screen capping that goes along with it. Rant over. Oh, that's good stuff. Um, you know what? I Something I want to learn how to play around with is is doing uh, RF recording like that, going back and trying to figure out a way to, to use that recorded audio digitally, get down into uh, to voice and get that stuff out. I'm sure it wouldn't be hard. There, there's there's a lot of ways that I could use some creativity and do that, but that'd be a fun exercise. You could take like a bass, you're talking about taking like a bass band recording? Yeah. I believe is what they call it. Yeah, you can do there's There's several programs for doing baseband recordings of uh, you can even take a baseband recording of the entire, uh, you know, in this case for an RTL SDR. I typically run mine at the 2.4 megahertz because, like I said earlier, that's like the stable bandwidth for the viewing of the RTL SDR. You could push it to like the 3.2, but 2.4 seems to run really well, especially if your computer is maybe lower on processing power and stuff. Um, but you can record the entire 2.4 megahertz and all the activity happening on it. And then you can go back and analyze that information. That's, uh, that's potentially dangerous. It's something that I considered. I was uh, explaining how SDR worked to a group that I trained, a few, uh, let's see, last summer. Um, you know, there's, there's SDRs that are placed in cities that you can log onto a website and tune into that SDR and tinker around listen to, to a variety of locations yeah. in the band just think about that for a minute there was one set up uh, there's actually a few that were set up in i don't know if they're still up but uh they were set up in ukraine when the uh war uh first broke out and some of them were set up for monitoring the hf spectrum some were set up for vhf uhf all that kind of stuff you could hop online and however that works they funneled that you know rtl sdr's information that it was gathering to the internet you can get on and like view it live and tune to like an area of spectrum which is super interesting that's that's fascinating stuff right there 
And then add in mesh networking and now do that remotely. Yeah. <laughs> Entirely remotely. Oh, man. that's uh, That mesh networking stuff, once it starts getting up there, is some... It's some pretty crazy stuff. It's also super cool. I want to learn a whole lot more about mesh. I mean, I get I get the basics of it. I've experimented with Meshtastic, but there's some depths of mesh networking that I don't understand that I would love to know. Yeah, there's still a lot that I'm not even sure of just because the technology is changing so fast. Um, like at a, at a base level, you, you should just try to understand what multiple in, multiple out means. But the beam forming technologies and all the different, almost like... um both receive and transmit manipulations that are being done actually at the software side as well as the hardware side uh, definitely takes a lot and every company does it a little differently so and there is no real standard yet seems like between like Silvis and like wave relay and everything everyone's doing yeah. something a little different yep correct that's fascinating stuff you know what's really cool i don't know do we talk about it Parker Bacon and comms and logistics are using that uh, Ubiquity rocket yep. to uh, MPU5 at home. <laughs> yeah, or Silvis Technologies at home and stuff. I, I uh, talked with them a little bit of how that works, and it's still uh, pretty far over my head, although I hope to get there one day. <laughs> yeah, one day. Because <laughs> uh, it is it's super interesting stuff. Yeah, not to get off topic here, but yeah, I think, I think what's what's really on people's minds now, especially with influencers. And I'm not going to call him an influencer. That's kind of like a, a no-no word nowadays. But uh, the tech prepper, he does a great job, I think, in kind of pushing the envelope in terms of getting back to man packs. Because um, man packs are really going to be the capability that I think help bring communities together when infrastructure is either degraded or denied in the future, um, especially when you get into kind of high power VHF and even HF man packs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. High power VHF man pack is something that's definitely on my list. It sounds like it'd be awesome to be able to have like a uh, like what I was looking at possibly doing is like an XTL 5000, which is just a it's a Motorola uh, P25 mobile. You can get them, I think, in 50 watts and up to 110 watts. And getting one of those 110 watt ones in a pack with like a big battery and then some uh, maybe some pre-cut lengths of wire for uh, for antennas and stuff. That'd be really cool to mess around with and seeing what kind of uh, range boost you can get out of that. Yeah. And as far as man packs go, I guess this isn't really technically man pack, but I'm still I'm, I'm bent on getting a uh, mobile HF rig. P rig together then that you know you can take into the field have it in a pack with you and quickly deploy Not that because that gives you regional comms it gives you international comms but that also you know from a sigint perspective blasting region uh so that that brings up a good question uh ethan what's what can be learned from uh invis from hf um i'm sure there's space tools out there looking straight down you are all that shit up pretty quickly <laughs> that is a fact um uh yeah, you're talking about a lot of not just satellite stations that are kind of, I wouldn't say harvesting data, but at least monitoring monitoring select geographic space within the ionosphere. Um, on top of that, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, but we still use in the Marine Corps. I believe they're called the truck ones. 170s. Um, it's what's called a tropo scatter uh, radio terminal. What that does is pretty much send microwave signals, digital digital microwave signals into the troposphere, which is lower than the ionosphere. It's the, pretty much the closest sphere to the uh, the surface of the Earth, and they kind of operate in in a similar way as Envis. 
pretty good LPD, pretty good LPI. And what I mean by that is low probability of interception and low probability of detection, um, which both play a role in the kind of ComSec and MCON. But um, international comms is necessarily with NVIS, but definitely, I would say, county to county and even state to state. Um, it's definitely appropriate with NVIS, like city to city as well, like adjacent cities. But yeah, in terms of actual enemy capability of intercepting NVIS, you're talking either space-based capabilities overhead um, from where you're transmitting, or at least within the, I would say, 100-mile radius of that, um, and specific low Earth orbit systems too. Uh, on top of that, you're talking about p- potentially other HF, enemy HF receivers or enemy HF SDRs within that NVIS. I know there's a word for it. I'm missing it right now, but sort of the NVIS rainfall is what I'll call it. The rainfall kind of a radius. Yeah, the, um, the umbrella. Like the umbrella kind of thing. I guess that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. And then there's also something that's pretty cool with... Uh, with VHF, you meant you you uh, mentioned the, the troposphere. If the conditions are right, this kind of plays more in a ham radio, but you could use it for tactical radio too, and extending your your like handhelds capabilities possibly. But it's really finicky. But there's a thing called tropospheric ducting, which is basically when the atmospheric conditions are just right. VHF, like even VHF high bands, like you know the normal handhelds use like 130 to 170 megahertz. Uh, can actually get trapped in that duct of the troposphere and travel for over a hundred miles. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, it does amaze me that there. tropospheric uh, methods like the TRC one seventy in the Marine Corps. I think the Army's gotten away from it recently, but I know the Marine Corps has had it since the mid to late eighties, and we're still using it here in twenty twenty three. Obviously, with upgrades, we've had you know module upgrades and whatnot over the years. Bandwidths increased. I think now we're pushing as much as 20 megabits per second uh, for phone, wow. email, uh, and in general kind of data transport services. But um, so it's come a long way since its 80s kind of birth. But um, you still see them in the pace plan and many times uh, for sort of, I would say, at least a COC at the battalion level, all the way up to pushing data back to a regiment or division level COC. But yeah, that's really cool. It's interesting though, you know, talking about the the envis and, and everything, and that's just kind of goes along with what I've read as well. Is uh, re- really most HF, but especially envis, just in the way that you're sending your RF, you know, pretty much straight up into the ionosphere to be reflected back down at also what would be very steep angles. So it's like you said, it's kind of like a rainfall or like an umbrella effect uh, around your like fairly immediate area, depending on conditions and stuff you could get out, I think to like three to 500 miles with Envis. But um, just through the nature of how that works, it's incredibly hard to DF unless there was a station close enough. Part of that, you, you might have some ground wave associated with your Envis setup there could be some like ground wave propagation correct yeah and, and that would have to be almost line of sight for that for that to be df which would be the same way as dfing normal like handheld traffic you know one of the things we talked about with tactical comms was you know invis it kind of lights up an entire grid square if you're going to df it not narrowing your signal location onto a singular point you're like airing it down to a region. Yeah. And I think that even kind of went for like aerial or even like space-based technologies. Uh, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint. You, you get an entire grid square. So if, if you were to target invis station, uh, which for oh, elimination, well, we you basically that. have to bomb the entire grid square. Sometimes bombing a grid square 
um, does become a decision and it does happen. And you see it in places like Ukraine. You've seen it in places back in, back in history, right? With the desert storm and the Iraqi invasion and whatnot. So yeah, it's definitely something to note, but if we're talking, you know, what's, what's the concern for the civilian? Well, if you're already operating HF, there's very, very, very few assets out there that are going to be coming after you from a listening and SIGINT perspective, um, not, you know, pretty much outside the scope of the nation state. So and I, I think it's safe to say that as yeah, far as a- civilians are concerned, there's, there's not much out there that going to successfully uh, DF a HF station. It's kind of left into the realm of uh, nation state uh, resources and, and tools like that. Yeah. I would also think that a, a nation state, as far as like SIGINT and like all those kind of like electronic warfare capabilities are trying to advance and pace with other nation states, you know, peers, you know, peers technology wise and trying to combat and learn to exploit those and are more focused on exploiting those types of communications rather than, you know, civilian grade, commercial grade. Uh, level. While they while they do have those capabilities, they've been doing it for a long time. The most you're worried about since a lot of commercial HF that's not encrypted. I mean, you're talking about a pretty heavy buy-in price for that. The most you're worried about is some ham guy capturing your HF traffic. But even then, if you're already operating HF within your community or within your team, um, you've probably got a lot of SOP already in place to maximize your emissions control, to maximize your comsec. And so an HF is really more like, you know, an intermittent communications. We're not really talking active transmit. We're talking about a pretty wide open comm window. So we could talk comm windows later too, but HF is more, especially HF data, not HF voice. Uh, it's pretty easy to kind of find analogous ways to i guess ie encrypt i wouldn't i wouldn't say encrypt but quote unquote encrypt or at least pardon uh what you're sending let's dive into that a little bit uh let's talk about things that we can do as far as sops go for comsec uh the top of my list is emissions control um you know and this directly applies to conversation right now hf you Part of emissions control is you want to lower your RF footprint as much as possible. By doing so, you're you're limiting, I guess, the radius of where your signal is capable of reaching. And if it can't reach there, it can't be detected. Keeping your your TX power down, uh, that's that's going to be the first step of uh, emissions control. And there's quite a bit more to that. But what do you guys think about that? Caleb, you got any words first? Uh, yeah, I can I can hop in there. I was um, yeah. First step is going to be the using the lowest power possible to complete the transmission. Um, several other things go into that. I think, you know, you hear a lot of guys on Instagram and stuff talk about directional antennas. That's also a great um, method as you can lower your output power and still like achieve fairly long range communications using a well-tuned uh, directional antenna. And that way you're radiating very little amounts of power to the sides and behind you, uh, as opposed to the actual direction that the antenna is pointing. But that also means that you have to know pretty accurately the bearing at which uh, your target is for that communication. And if there's anything between you or them that could also still prevent that from happening, but uh, that that would be two key aspects to that. And, you know, talking about SOPs and directional antennas, if you were to establish coordinate locations of where you were to transmit and receive from, they're predetermined, 
planned out and then you had a comms window on top of that you would know okay i have to get to location a which is at this grid coordinate i have to point my directional antenna my yagi at location b which is this grid coordinate this uh gps location at this specific time and i know that person b is going to be at location b uh at this time pre-designated receiving this signal that that's a big Man, I'm struggling to say this. Uh, it, it, it's a way to cut down on I'm not just going to push the button whenever I feel like okay. it. I'm going to push the button at a pre-designated time that my buddy knows I'm going to push the button at. And he's going to be listening at that exact same time. And you can only pick up a signal if somebody's transmitting, right? So, you know, you cut down on your transmit time, which means you're cutting down on the opportunity for an adversary to listen in if you're using comm windows. Uh, and furthermore, you know, if, if you're going to have yeah. Uh, transmission and receive points. You're you're only going to be able to intercept a signal if you're in between point A and B, or you're very close. And ideally, there wouldn't be a way of intercepting that if if SOPs are good and you're in a and your uh, environment's favorable. There shouldn't be any point of intercept. Uh, so that would be uh, like we mentioned earlier. That would be a way of making your communication have a low probability of intercept or uh, L. Uh, LPI, I believe is what uh, C5 said a little bit ago. Fuck, I was going to go somewhere else with that, but I forgot. Someone else jump in. No, no worries. Yeah, I think what we need to kind of touch on, too, is like, and just to kind of back up, because we keep saying things like a SOP or whatnot, but really what I'm trying to say instead of SOP is what, a, what we kind of commonly call in the military CEOI. Uh, and this directly correlates to your ComSec and your MCON planned um, CEOI is communications, uh, I believe electronics operation instructions or operating instructions, uh, kind of synonymous with SOI or signal operating instructions. I tend to not say SOI just because when I say SOI and I'm talking EW, now I'm talking about a signal of interest. So you can see why the military and acronyms don't always play nice, but um, so I say CEOI. There's really no other acronyms out there I know of that can, that would conflict with that outside of what I'm talking about right now. So, but what a CEOI is, and just this is just for the audience, is it's a actually a legitimately a combat order issued for the technical control and coordination of communications within a unit or command structure. Um, this is going to include things like call signs, frequencies. Um, if you're using any kind of telephone service that may include a telephone directory or what I would call an ISD, uh, code words. I know my Balfang users will talk code words for their rudimentary encryption, i.e., using kind of one-time pads and hey, my brevity yeah, code. Yeah, my brevity your brevity code. codes. And speaking of brevity codes, like things even like you know, we have our physical challenge and pass. Yeah, you know, like you're stopping through the woods at night. Uh, your team is too poor for nods, so you don't have any kind of signaling under IR. But instead, your signaling is stumbling into a foxhole, stumbling into a patrol, um, coming back from like a leader's recon. And now someone thinks you're an enemy coming forward and you yell, you know, dollar beers, dollar beers. And they yell back, you know, Cheetos. And that's like your challenge and pass, right? You, you may have seen a good example in this in the, the TV series, Band of Brothers. Uh, I think they say flash lightning as their challenge and pass. So uh, the challenger will say flash and then the, the challengee the person challenge will will respond lightning 
So much in the same way, you should definitely look into applying that on your communications network, um, especially if the the threat level of nation state exploitation is is at least a moderate or a high level, where a capable adversary could even inject themselves into your talk idea or your talk group. If you're talking DMR stuff or even P25 digital stuff, um, and especially for analog, there's really no way to identify friend from foe on analog communications. So always adding in some sort of pre-conceived and pre-planned challenge and pass for communications, I would say is also another mitigation effort for countering enemy EW, enemy PSYOP, and enemy signals intelligence. Um, just because now you're challenging that user, uh, especially if they're trying to talk on the net, because um, that gets confusing, especially when you're talking large-scale communities, large-scale units that have a lot of radio users. Um, and if a, an enemy is on your net or on your radio network, uh, and they know your commandos and they know your general CEOI outside of whatever challenge or pass you have designated, then there's very much a large threat there, right? Because now you have a, a masquerader in the midst. So, but that's also very niche, but I do want to throw it out there for the audience. Um, it's typically not very painful to at least throw out a challenge and pass, especially you don't always have to use it, but it's especially useful if you're talking to somebody that's all of a sudden kind of claiming things, going against the pre-established um, order of movement, the pre-established meetup points or rendezvous points or whatever it is. And there's just kind of weird data being passed around the radio net from this particular user. Or this person missed a common window. Let's say they missed a common window by 15 minutes. Well, that could potentially mean that that person that had the radio was compromised. They were, you know, they were ambushed, they were killed. Uh, and now that, now that enemy has their radio and is trying to use it. So... Things to know. Al, um, I, had a, I had a question. So if you were, let's say you're running Balfangs, analog FM, and you implement a you know challenge or pass, you would have to cycle that out pretty commonly in the uh, in the anticipation of like some kind of signal intelligence or you know somebody else collecting that information. Because if you're just running clear analog, anybody listening to you know the the net for you know even. Uh, a little bit can probably pretty quickly piece together the the challenge and, and pass that, that you guys are talking about. So is there a way to uh, maintain that security through like a clear analog communications? Good question. I, I, I need to like sit and ponder that for a while. Because, <laughs> you know, I was I was sitting here thinking about that. Um, I was like, okay, if you're running digital encrypted, you know, radios, you're running good high level encryption AES-256, well, you can be pretty confident that uh, they're not cracking your encryption. Um, so they're not going to be able to hear what the challenger pass is. They'll know that the traffic's happening, but they won't be able to, to get in on that information. But how, how could you combat that from a, from a clear analog perspective? If Ethan wants to, are you talking about combating as an exploiting or combating as in like, if you yourself and your team were using clear analog and trying to work in rudimentary sort of, uh, security efforts? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like you and your team are running Balfangs, just clear FM, and you have implemented a challenger pass. Um, how do you keep that secure? Because like I was saying, anybody with a $30 SDR uh, it strapped to their chest in a, and an Android phone could be listening to that. Yeah, so there, there's two things to, to your point. 
first thing is there is a reason why the military invests so heavily in communications. Not that's not not that's not just because they're trying to stay ahead of a pacing peer adversary threat and the, de- and the adversaries th- uh, development of said communications or whatnot, and you know their personal communications. But we're talking, I mean, nation states. We're talking huge organizations, right? The Marine Corps is uh, one hundred eighty thousand people. The Army is like three times that. The Navy's roughly the same in terms of like over well over half a million people and service members. Um, you're talking about very very large groups, um, and they need obviously advanced communications, advanced command and control methods. Uh, but for Baofengs, and this sort of applies to digital, uh, especially to like the surplus P twenty five market, um, is scalability. And it's definitely achievable to do a Baofeng with rudimentary security, i.e. one-time pads, code words, brevity codes, whatever, um, in a small, small group talking about uh, probably at least less than 10 users um, that all have kind of physical, are able to physically interact beforehand uh, to talk about said codes and said security measures and then keep it, keep it there. Cause then, and it's a, it's a group of 10 trusted individuals. They all trust each other. They all spent time trusting each other. Uh, and then what really comes down to is scalability. Can you scale that security? I would beg to differ. You can't. I would say you cannot scale that because once you start growing that group, bringing in people, you have to rebuild that trust. And that's, that's an entire security system based on interpersonal trust. And by going into like encryption keys and kind of a, you know, a units, a unit's own S6. And when I say S6, I mean like a comm shop, right? Like having a, a group of communicators designated within a unit that handle everything comsec. They handle the crypto. They handle everything. They're able to control the keys. They are already a trusted group of individuals. Um, and it's simply handing out a radio, ideally one with not, without front panel programming enabled, even if it's got the keys. But as long as FPP is not enabled in the code plug, you're good. Um, to be able to then hand that out to a person with maybe little to no trust that is joining your group. And now you're able to scale that security because that, that radio is being offered with encryption and whatnot. Um, obviously, that person, if they're truly an insider threat, they can still, still do other stupid things, um, MCON-wise, to at least exploit your own t- on your own team. But in terms of scaling security in a large group, thinking there's no insider threats, there's still a level of trust needed to scale that security, um, as well as not just trust, but training, right? People need to be competent in their radio etiquette to take that rudimentary security and apply it every time, every time they key the radio, right? Which gets taxing. It's mentally taxing to be, especially in the middle of the middle of a firefight. The last thing I'm trying to think of is like, okay, what are my words I'm saying in a firefight? Um, I'll, I'll be at your kinetic. So maybe it's not as important when you're already kinetic and bolts already flying. Um, but at the same time, by adding advanced features, by adding it, by, by making something digital, you're already raising yourself off the noise floor away from analog users that potentially could have listened to you, but now they can't because their analog radio cannot listen to digital. Um, you're getting, you're getting yourself up and away, which yeah, in many cases can highlight you in terms of like a nation state seeing that as a, Oh, this person is more advanced because they're running digital. They're not running analog. But like I said, I think I'm not going to hate on Baofengs necessarily because I think they're a great tool for a very small unit. 
but I think if you're trying to grow your unit beyond a squad size element, then analog should definitely be left behind. Uh, not completely, but it has a place in the pace plan. But just know that digital radios of today can also interop with analog. So it's like, what are you really waiting for? Um, but I do think, like I said, uh, scalability is a, is a primary factor, especially when we are looking at growing communities um, of like-minded individuals. Uh, that all need to be basically trained radio operators. I'll stop there for now to actually catch a break and see if you guys want to add to that before I go to my second point, which is digital versus analog performance and physical performance in the spectrum and why that matters, tactically speaking. Yeah, I mean, I can totally agree with you there. Um, I, I see all the the points you hit and kind of answered my question also about the whole uh, the 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 analog problem and you'd, you'd be cycling out those those code words and everything a lot because if you just keep using those over and over even a pretty low level signal intelligence person somebody with just a computer and an RTL SDR and a cheap antenna can start picking apart that those transmissions and and put up and you know piece the puzzle together pretty quickly and you know i think it's something like we talked about last time on on take one of the podcast but it's uh it's it's about layering your security and basically you know how with your your balfang or your clear analog transmissions it's just everything's out in the open it's 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 an open book it's out there it's why we call it clear air everyone can hear it everyone can see it you know um but then you you start adding digital and now you're adding encryption and now you're adding comms windows and now you're adding directional antennas. You're trying to make your communications one hard to detect, hard to intercept, and then you're making it hard to decode and hard to gather any or as little information from as possible. It's, it's something that I dived into last time with uh, the open window or the open door theory. Oh, yeah, that's so right. I remember that. Kind of, if you think about it, you know, there, there's there's vulnerabilities with every layer security, right? So um, as far as ComSec is concerned, it kind of put it to an analogy and think about it like this. It's like, what are our, our kind of our layers of ComSec? And the first thing is going to be emissions control. Uh, the most vulnerable is going to be analog. And as you get into digital, you're complicating it even more. Um, so you, your, your digital type is going to be one layer. Uh, encryption is going to be your second layer. Um, going burst messaging is going to be your third layer. So it's, it's kind of like, is your house absolutely secure from being broken in? No, it's not. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't lock your front door. So analog comms, kind of like we talked about last time on the first recording, is you have your house and your front door is just wide open. Anybody can come and anybody can go. So how secure is that? For answer, it's not very secure at all. Digital is going to be equivalent to putting a front door on your house. With digital, you're going to have to have the same type of digital radio to be able to listen in on the digital communication that you're intercepting. If pick up a uh, P25 signal, but you have a DMR radio, you're not going to be able to hear it. You have to have a P25 radio. Uh, so kind of going the next layer out from there is encryption. Encryption, you know, we're talking about encryption keys. Well, your door has a key on it. If you want to get into that house, you're going to need to have a key to that door. So encryption, you know, you, you have to have the encryption key to be able to decipher uh, the radio traffic and, and be able to hear the voice or 
receive the data packets that are being sent. And uh, so it just goes on from there. We, we, we can talk about frequency hopping. We can talk about trunking. There's, there's so much more that you can add to the equation that complicates your security measures. And basically, Ethan, when I originally talked to you about this topic, uh, you pointed out Every layer that you're going to add is going to require manpower and assets. And the more manpower and assets are required to uh, to break in, uh, the longer it's going to take. Is any signal absolutely safe? Absolutely not. It is not absolutely safe. Anybody can just walk up to your house and brute force the door down with a sledgehammer. Uh, figuratively speaking, there are tools that exist out there that do that in the RF realm. And uh, that's that's kind of probably a, a little bit of what you guys do in the Marines. We, we all know that DARPA's got tools out there that exist that we don't even know about and nation state assets and, you know, that stuff exists. From a civilian perspective, there's things that you can do that add layers of security that for somebody to, to, to get into your house, so to speak, you're going to require them to have a, a few additional tools and it's going to take them a, a little bit longer to get in. The more you can delay it, the, the better edge you have tactically at issuing a secure communication. Not only issuing a secure cu- communication, but receiving a secure communication as well. Makes sense? Did I say that right? I, I feel like that's kind of a, a, a fuzzy example. But when we're talking about ComSec, I mean, basically the gist of what ComSec is, is you're just, how can I complicate my adversary from listening to me at all? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. I mean, um, I kind of talked about last time, right? Like if you've got a Baofeng and you you like Baofengs because they're ubiquitous, they're easy to get access to, and a lot of people have them. Well, you the the kind of the double-edged sword there is the fact that so many people have them is that now you have all those people that can potentially listen in on you. And then above that, if we're going up the pyramid and take this, you know, everyone above you on the pyramid and at your level in the pyramid can listen to you. Well, if we go up the pyramid, now I just cut off the entire bottom of the pyramid, right? So when I go up the pyramid, I'm at, the bottom's analog. I go up, I'm at digital. Not really specifically any kind of particular protocol. I'm just talking, when I say digital, I mean, I, I mean both P25, phase one. I'm not going to mention phase two because phase two is not as available uh, for us just yet. And I definitely think it will be more common a few years from now in the surplus market. But as I mentioned, phase one, P25, uh, as well as your tier two and tier three DMR. Um, tier one, I mean, who even talks about that anymore? But at the same time, once you do make that push to digi- digi- digital, digital, you've now just erased every single Balfang user as a potential threat, as a potential listener. Um, and then you go up that all the way up to we're talking more advanced waveforms. And if we're talking things for civilians, we're talking HF data and whatnot. And now you're really well beyond uh, the pyramid of where everyone beneath that that don't have that doesn't have access to the listen in. But yeah, then you're talking about nation states and making it painful for a nation state to then listen in on you. And that just comes down to the same methods we apply to cyber operations. And that is A, changing your TTPs or getting your enemy to change their TTPs, uh, whether that be TTPs of their communications, TTPs of their SIEW operations or their signals intelligence operations and how they conduct them. Um, that's painful, right? Changing an entire way you conduct an operation is very painful. It's technically like imagine going back to any kind of military doctrine and having to rewrite the whole book on how to do things. Uh, very painful. Uh, it's like taking 10 steps back and no steps forward. Uh, and at the same time, you're not denying the enemy that intelligence that they were trying so hard to get in the first place. And when you do that over and over over an extended period of time, 
you're ultimately just breaking, you're getting into that human factor, right? Uh, you're breaking down their will, their desire to continue trying to exploit you. Um, and that's really kind of how you, and it's, you kind of saw it in the 20 years in the global war on terror, you saw, you saw the Taliban, the Al Qaeda, they learned, um, well, obviously they learned in blood, but they, they learned how deadly American signals intelligence and intelligence gathering efforts were, um, just in the targeting cycle, right? Getting bombs dropped on their heads, riding a motorcycle and all of a sudden having a JDAM just land on your head, right? Uh, they learned very quick how dangerous things like that became. And they definitely, I would say they didn't, didn't perfect it, but over the course of 20 years, they definitely became harder to kill uh, within their emissions space, right? And that all that just made it entirely more difficult for a nation state that was throwing billions and billions of dollars in their defense budget and billions of deployments of sending personnel over there. Personnel that I'll be highly trained in their craft, right? We're talking about sending SOCOM guys over there, some of the best warfighters the U.S. could produce that were still struggling to target, you know, locate and target and kill terrorists via their their communications networks. So just looking at it in that lens um, and then a, a nation state and the amount of just, um, yeah, like I said, drawing out their resources, drawing out their time, their talent, uh, and then getting into those human factors of like dealing with a 20-year conflict, not what we probably thought was a five-year conflict. Um, you really can see that at a bigger scale of just by making some small changes on your end, simply as getting a radio that's capable of AES-256 encryption. Um, that's little effort on your end. It is a little bit more investment in terms of money, but it's very little effort to implement. Um, and it's that much harder for a, now an adversary to overcome. It's very much a, you know, exponential return on your investment is, is what I would call it. And it's always, it's always worthwhile. That's a good point. And, you know, something to add on to that, going back to Afghanistan, you know, look, look how primitive those people were and look how deprived of technology and tools they were and look how much they got away with. And look how much they adapted, you know, and, and look how prepared our military was, the tools we had and the training we had. It, it says something right there about being able to adapt to a situation and, and being able to overcome that situation. That's that's a lot of what ComSec is about. As much as you can frustrate any intelligence gathering operation, it, it's going to work to your advantage in the end of the day. It doesn't mean that you're going to be completely hidden or undetectable. Uh, it's just going to give you an opportunity to you know, say what you got to say and move out of the way uh, by the time they figure out what you said and where you're going to speak. Um, it's kind of what it's all about is... You know, kind of going back to the analogy, you're, you're, you're trying to slow down the attack, trying to gate, gain an edge that way. That's kind of the objective of ComSec, really. Yeah, I mean, you're... Oh, I was wondering where he was. I was attaching tourniquets to my chest rig. <laughs> just get a tap, but just get a tap, sir. But okay? I'm here. Rep that shit. No, I have, a, I have an expensive taps. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I may actually get another taps rig, I'm not going to lie. Um... The ones in ACU, I get it. ACU is ugly. Dye ACP. It. Put some Brit dye on. Um, it. You, well, you can you can dye it, but you can just I mean you can just throw pouches on it, and now you're not going to see the AC or the ECP anymore. Exactly. You can also just spray paint it. I spray paint everything, dude. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, but like UCP with like OD green or Ranger green is actually pretty cool. So okay, get this guy off. <laughs> Kick him off. <laughs> Kick him off. He's not cool anymore. <laughs> so so the, the cool thing about ACU, and we're getting wildly off topic, but that's okay, is you can get surplus ACU 
gear for dirt fucking cheap. You really? Yeah. Can. An ACU, an ACU flick. So a fighting load carrier runs about ten dollars shipped on and, eBay. And is that just a taps basically? Uh, no, the flick is the like the mesh. Oh, kind that's of, the um, that's like the vest. Yeah, I would actually call it a, a it's a, a plate carrier that can't hold plates and is pretty much just like a poor man's split rig. Okay. Yeah, I've seen those. You can get those at the Army Navy store for like ten fifty. But yeah, yeah, super, super honestly, if I was if I was talking to a newbie that was wanting to get into the tactical space and get into radios and get into fighting with a rifle but needed a way of carrying his stuff um on a budget, like fighting load carrier or a taps is by far the the best way to go. You know what's cool is you can get a flick. Is it a 70 liter ruck and an assault pack? The pouches on the flick for like 130 bucks. Then all you got to do is go get a big. Yeah, you can get an entire stiff yeah, issue. Yeah, for, that, that's yeah. a whole kit. And you can just go get a big ass bucket, some boiling hot water in there, and some writ dye. All that shit in there and stir it around and let it cool off and rinse it. And you've got a green or tan or whatever color you want ACU pattern for 130 bucks. The die, easy peasy, man. That's a uh, that's an easy entry point. It is pretty sweet. Terrible. I do like the spray like, paint though. But what were they? Who made who made money on that? Designed that? So somebody <laughs> made money finding that pattern and implementing it. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> what does it blend into? Uh, pretty much a gravel parking lot. It doesn't even look cool. <laughs> it doesn't even look cool. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a big multicam fan, but at least it looks kind of cool. I despise multicam. Fedcam, all the way, Fedcam. At least we've gone back to the OG Fedcam, which is M81. I mean, that's still a Fedcam. But you take that back. I love that. Tiger Stripe, baby. Yeah. It's the. It's the yeah. Let's go back to Vietnam era Tiger God's Stripe. Plaid. I don't know. My opinion, like where I live, I wish. I wish Multicam Tropic was more prevalent and easy to acquire it in mass. But yeah, M81 is still, I think, impossible to kind of defeat at this point just because the surplus market is always going to be booming with it. Uh, and honestly, throughout most places of the U.S., barring like the Grand and the deserts there on the west side, M81 is pretty much good like anywhere. This is, this is true. So uh, the groups that I trained with down in Austin, we went to Fort Hood every year and we did the uh, – Fort Hood hosts a Milsim every year and they invite a bunch of civilians to do airsoft. Uh, they have a whole city built, have a town square. There's a mosque there. There's all kinds of office buildings. There's a bunch of residential structures and they're not furnished or anything like that. But they have a whole Milsim event. It's the Army versus the civilian airsoft. And if you know anything about airsoft, it's mostly a game, uh, you know, because you can get shot and go back to your spawn point and re-enter the game. Which is not really training, if you ask me, but regardless. But one of the things that I noticed about multicam in, in this Fort Hood Milsim kind of do like uh, desert colors, so coyote and FDE against green and woodland and the 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 forested ATAX colors. So uh, multicam worked great when you're in like the tall grass and you're in the open areas. Uh, but when once you get into the green wooded areas, you're glowing. Multicam is glowing. It's just too tan to be in the green. Uh, and the same. The the opposite is is true for the the green colors and the the woodland colors. Once those woodland guys got into the tall grass, it's a dark shadow moving quick through a tan area, and they're glowing in the opposite direction. Super interesting to see that. It's like okay, you know, so what colors exist out there that can kind of bridge the gap? Short answer: I don't know if there really is any. 
Yeah, I've always just said, like, if you're wearing M81, it definitely is good to at least have, like, a mix of PPE colors, whether that be Coyote Brown or OCP, something contrasting, like Multicam or Coyote Brown um, kit on top of M81 Woodland, and then vice versa for Multicam, having, like, either M81 or Ranger Green um, or even Multicam Tropic kit or PPE colors on top of your actual Multicam kind of help break up that colorway. Um, yeah. I definitely think old school, like Ranger Regiment, Multicam, Fatigues with like Ranger Green PPE was definitely like, definitely a vibe too. So yeah, that's, that's just my thought. I, I really like, uh, I wear like typically M81 fields down here in Florida. And then um, a lot of my kit is uh, Multicam. And I feel like it's a really good kind of breakup to that dark, um, Kind of like that dark silhouette you can get from wearing like all M81, especially if it's like new, fresh stuff that's not faded. Uh, and then you add some multicam or like Ranger Green, Coyote Brown um, on top of it. It can really help offset the the dark tones. Um, also, uh, I've I've done some because uh, I have like a gosh, I'm just like rambling. I have like a M81 bottoms with like a a multicam combat shirt on top with multicam kit, you know, chest rig and stuff on top of that also looks really good depending on like the environment you're in. If you've got a lot more like darker, um, you know, grasses and foliage like down at like waist level, but then you're dealing with more like openness and trees and stuff up above waist level, then uh, that kind of mix half and half seems to be a really good medium as well. Okay, okay, so real talk. What does that navy blue digital blend into? The ocean. <laughs> the the horizon. <laughs> I still have mine from when I was wearing those. So luckily the navy got away from those in twenty nineteen. Just, you know, more taxpayer money. No big deal. Hey man overboard. Not gonna see him. And he's wearing blue camo. <laughs> it does make for good like op four camo, you know, like just being a Muppet kind of thing muppets i don't know i mean the more i think about camo like it's situation dependent you're not talking about comms anymore no i mean i think camouflage is cool and everything and it's it's supposed to help aid in in blending into your environment but it it's it'll never take the place of you know proper uh concealment using terrain features the, the foliage putting material between you and uh your observer is the best way to uh, to stay hidden, obviously. It doesn't matter how good your camouflage is if you're standing out in the open. Or wildly off topic. Yeah, where were we at? Ethan had uh, something else he wanted to talk about. I think the uh, the efficiency of using digital uh, waveforms as opposed to analog. Yeah, I'll just touch on that real fast because this really doesn't apply too much. Well, in many ways, it does apply to like EW and the physics of electronic support, especially when you get into like the the physics side, like I said, uh, the techniques. So AOA, which is angle of arrival. Um, I want to say POA is either power of arrival, like the actual decibel level, um, or sorry, not the decibel, but the DB readings. And then TDOA, which is time difference of arrival. Those are the three techniques I'm most familiar with when it comes to like geolocating and emission source. And there's obviously, if we're talking emission source, we're talking power, we're talking multipath, we're talking environmental factors, propagation. But really what it boils down to is digital, just by design, 
digital was designed to improve upon the performance in really every facet over analog. And this is just, I'm going to speak to kind of a scientific experimental approach to this, pretending I have two radios, one's analog, one's digital. It could be the same radio for that matter. Just to isolate all the variables, hardware is the same, software is the same. However, if I'm talking to two people at the same distance, one one set of people with analog and one set with digital, obviously the voice is going to come a lot come across a lot clearer with digital, just the way it's built out. Um, and then for analog, we're going to start introducing more environmental factors. Um, the analog signal, especially if we're talking like bigger, like two meter band stuff like VHF, like ham VHF, uh, that's going to start dropping off a lot faster in like an urban environment, whatnot. Uh, whereas like typically what you see with digital is even with a partial frame being delivered, you'll still get communications, whereas analog won't get anything. That also extends to just sheer line of sight distance. Digital is giving you a little bit more distance, um, which can be critical in a tactical sense. And that's the, that's the difference between receiving important critical information versus not receiving it um, at all. So that being said, that's what, that's just another factor that goes into what are you kind of willing to bet off on? Um, and I would definitely say put more money into more capability, even if it is three to four times more expensive to go after a digital, like a capable digital P25 handset or a DMR handset uh, over an analog handset. Because at the end of the day, you still have analog as a fallback option with your interoperability feature. Um, so if, yeah, if you're adding new users to your group, you're definitely still able to talk. Um, but at the same time, there's a reason digital is created. And there's a reason we haven't really gone back to analog for any reason. So I think that's really enough to say what I need to say. Because like I said, for tactical communications, it's life and death. And I don't think you should play a game of, well, I'm just going to take a performance cut because analog's cheaper. More people are using it. It'll be easier to grow this way because more people are using analog. Um, it should, should take a hard look at kind of what what your priorities are in establishing communications. If it's just simply to grow a group and get in comms with a lot of people, then I don't think you're really talking tactical communications anymore. You're just talking community communications, which is an entirely different topic. And uh, I think people tend to kind of blur the lines between both of those and just tend to wrap up everything in tactical senses. But uh, it's just it's misguided. It's a good point. Yeah, totally agree there. Well, gentlemen, we're just going to edit out the whole camera discussion. Just <laughs> so we're we're approaching <laughs> the uh, yeah. You can shave, and, you can shave ten minutes. Minute yeah, shave ten minutes. <laughs> uh, Couple of dudes, with too many radios. Shit, man! I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine. I got nine radios staring at me in the face over here. Holy Four of them shit. are seven, eight hundred radios that I need to uh, program to uh, listen in. <clears throat> but uh, <clears throat> no, how it goes? You got to, you got to experiment. Nothing wrong with listening. And we, we need to do a better job of putting a disclaimer out to the community that a seven, eight hundred megahertz that is public safety band. Be careful. That's all. Said it. It's done. It's out. Cats out of the bag. Correct. Yep. Yeah. I mean, um. It's no different than trying to go shoot on like public land that may or may not be allowed for <laughs> recreational shooting. So, um, yeah, I think you mentioned something, uh, Tito, about uh, just like you know scanning your local county seven eight hundred band to see 
how saturated it is. And if it's not saturated, you're probably a little bit safer. But at the end of the day, you're still talking about potentially getting picked up by a nearby county that may be using it to be their police or sheriff department. Yeah, 7800 has multipathing capabilities that can reach far beyond what you would think it could reach. I think, I think honestly, like I said, disclaimer, don't use it unless you know what you're doing. But at the same time, subterranean operations, if you were a lucky civilian that had access to a pretty cool subterranean facility for training, those do make a really good option for subterranean communications. Yeah, they just bounce around and go pretty ridiculously far, even underground. Yeah, we'll see someone get arrested on the news and like, you know, the, the New York subway. <laughs> using a 7800. <laughs> New York hobos buy 7800 radios to use in the subway. Quote Civil Sentinel podcast as their source of information. That's what I'm afraid of, man. I don't, I, I, as much as we talk about experimenting with this stuff, I don't want anybody to accidentally go away and because they don't understand, make a mistake and then you know, get themselves in trouble. You know. Well, guys, that was a pretty good one. Did we, uh, did we hit all the points, including uh, we talked about camouflage, right? No, we did not. Let's let's talk about camouflage. wait. We didn't talk about eggs. Egg. Just buy chickens and put them in your backyard. Watch that magic happen. I was gonna say you could just like come down to, like rural Florida. There's just like chickens running around. You could just take them. They're free. I have 87 <laughs> chickens in my backyard. <laughs> I just heard a rooster. There, there's actually like. I go up like kind of like north end of the counties uh, It's and it's real rural and people's chickens are just running around. They don't give two shits. They just let their chickens free range and they give them a coop. And I don't know how that works, but uh, I imagine they have plenty of eggs. Guess I don't see you. Good evening. Good morning. Good night. Good night, everybody. Peace out all. Or good morning. Whenever you're listening to this podcast. Bye. Peace out. <laughs>